Welcome to another episode of the Gay Archive Show, where we explore gay history, one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is author, archivist, and activist, David W. Jackson, who will be discussing his memories from gay bars in Tampa, Florida, and Kansas City, Missouri, as well as his latest book project. Welcome, David. Thank you, Art, or shall I say Agent Smith? <laughs> so you have an interesting history. Um, I know your recent career is largely uh, involves the Kansas City, Missouri area, but you grew up right here near where I am in Tampa, Florida. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your coming out experience in sunny Florida? Oh, sunny Florida. Yeah, I grew up uh, from the age of seven until graduating high school in St. Petersburg, so just across the bay from where you live. <laughs> uh, my mom had remarried, so I, uh, the family moved to Florida when I was young, left my grandparents here in Kansas City. Uh, I'm a native Kansas Cityan, and so every summer, though, I would get to come back to Kansas City and, and visit with them and stay with them, so uh, I vowed as soon as I graduated from high school that I would be moving back to live with them. And that's what I actually did, but uh, not before coming out in uh, sunny Florida. Uh, it was 1986 when uh, my friends and I got a, a hotel room on Clearwater Beach at the Howard Johnson's, the Hojo, and a suite of rooms with about 15 uh, high school kids and one college student who was the one who arranged it all, I think. It was my first time ever um, drinking, allegedly getting drunk allegedly <laughs> um, and what actually happened was I blacked out and the next morning when I went to pick up my then girlfriend who had been there the night before uh, we went to the home shopping network uh, where we worked and uh, stopped at McDonald's on the way and she said so Dave tell me about last night and she proceeded to tell me all the things that I had told all my friends that I had kept secret and buried within myself since I was four years old. <laughs> so I basically, in my blackout stupor, came out to my friends. And uh, they were all pretty cool with it. Uh, my girlfriend, Chrissy, was really nice. And, and, it, and I'm sure it was hard, but she had a gay friend. Uh, and in fact, he's the first man I ever met who was gay in person. So uh, we had a little bit of influence you know, from him uh, and some coaching on coming out and all that stuff. So she handled it very well. And soon thereafter, she went to college and because she was one year older than I was and uh, and I was out. So I started, uh, you know, opening my eyes and seeing other people. The Home Shopping Network in Clearwater is a huge or at least then it was a huge like stadium sized room with just rows and rows of computers uh, and a sea of people uh, with the show up at the front of the auditorium. And uh, so lots of opportunity to see lots of people. And I started flirting with a young fellow. He was clearly older than I was. And I found through the gossip mill that he was a 24 year old uh, veteran from the Navy. And so we started flirting back and forth and passing notes because we were never sitting next to one another, uh, but people would pass notes for, for us. And we ended up going out one night to talk and and uh, make out. We went to the high school parking lot of all places. <laughs> Very innocent, but uh, 
Um, it did involve the police at the end. Uh, my car just lit up uh, after a few minutes because of course we were parked illegally and, uh, and made the excuse that he was helping me with my, 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 my algebra homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good time. The, the late 80s was a good time in Tampa because there were quite a number of uh, popular gay establishments around. And the nightlife was pretty hopping. I know I visited numerous times in the 80s um, to Tampa and always had a blast. And I know your, um, your first gay bar experience was in Tampa, wasn't it? My first one was in Dunedin, actually. Uh, I got a fake ID from that fellow I mentioned earlier, the, the gay fellow. His name was Christopher. He was Chrissy's best friend. So he gave me his old driver's license. And so I had a fake ID. We thought we would test drive it in Dunedin, downtown Dunedin. And so we went out after home shopping. Our shift was over at 10 o'clock, I think. And we went to this little car uh, club in, in Dunedin. I think it was called 1740. You've, 1470. 1470. You've kind of looked that up for me. Thank you. Uh, and I was so nervous, of course, and stood in line outside. I think the line, you know, was down the street. So we finally got up to the, the door and there was this really um, big woman taking tickets and or, or taking money and, and checking IDs with her flashlight. And she looked at my ID for what seemed like an eternity. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm there sweating bullets. Uh, my my uh, two friends that I went with, Mike was the fellow that I was flirting with, my, my seaman. He was first to go through and then I was in the middle and then our friend uh, Jeff was behind me. So I was kind of you know sandwiched between them as we moved through the process. And uh, I thought at first she wasn't going to let me in. I, I'm sure I looked 13, <laughs> but I did get in. And as soon as I walked in the door, I mean, it wasn't literally one minute when some fellow came up to me and pulled my shirt out and looked down my shirt, made some comment about me not having any chest hair, which freaked me out. First of all, that somebody had just like rushed right up to me and was touching me. <laughs> so uh, Jeff and Mike guided me to this, to the bar. I think they had several rooms and the bar was one of those old style, if I remember right, uh, wooden bars that kind of like, if you remember the television show, Cheers, you know, it's a great big rectangular bar with overhead soffits and, yeah. you know, glasses hanging down from the top and, you know, bar ads, backlit bar ads and things like that. So yeah, the little dive in Dunedin was really dated. I think I had read that it had been a disco club, discotheque, and it sure showed that age because the the dance floor was uh, one of those yellow oak parquet floors. <laughs> oh yeah, little yeah. disco bar ball, I should say. So my, under, my understanding is that 1470 West um, was originally it was uh, the original 1470 West was in Kettering, Ohio, and um, that the owners. I'm not sure if they they split up or if they decided they wanted a Florida bar so they had somewhere to go in the wintertime. But uh, it was the address of the one in Ohio was 1470 West Main or whatever the street was. Um, but they carried the name down to the one in, in Dunedin as well. And so I the address was not 1740 in Dunedin. It was 1470. Or 1470. Yeah, they were both 1470. Just a random number on, on the street in Dunedin. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember what the street address was there, but it became several other gay bars. It was also called Blur and 
a few other uh, names over the years, but um, it was a long running gay um, bar in Dunedin. Well, that was my first night. You know, the I, we tried out the, the small little club because then when we went across the next weekend to Tampa to El Goya, and my gosh, the music was so loud you could hear it from the parking lot when we parked, and it was just thrilling, just like enthralling, really. And uh, that's a Spanish-looking building, isn't it? The, it's yeah. been there since the late 1800s, I think. Um, I can see that in my mind now. It's that's, got the. It had arches along the windows on the at the corner end of the building where the where the Seventh Avenue meets Fifteenth Street. Uh, that end of the building had arched windows, and the door cut the corner. It was a, the door was diagonal to the corner at that mm-hmm. end, mm-hmm. and then at the other end of the building, um, they were more like. I don't know, double garage or shed doors that opened with iron grates on them and went into the entrance there. That bar was huge. Um, it had multiple rooms. As I recall, there was a, um, over to the left as you came in, there was a big uh, kind of tropical garden room with maybe bleacher seating and big palm trees, potted plants mm. and stuff inside to look very garden-like. Um, Right when you walked in, if you went to the right, that whole cent- central area there was a um, a lobby bar area with a bar up against the front wall of the building. If you went through the doors into the show bar, there was a room with a large rectangular um, or oval bar and a stage for drag performances and plenty of room for probably hundreds of people. And then the adjoining room was kind of like um, a billiard room and had a second dance floor with a different type of music playing in there. So you had plenty of places to explore in there. And we did. That's one thing I was going to tell you that I remembered is, uh, well, you know, just having that music thumping from outside, you know, and I remember the song was um, Erasure's uh, Sometimes. And it was just, that's an anthem song, you know, just keeps growing and getting louder and greater. And so it was really exciting to just listen to that as I got closer to the door. And I think that night, you know, Mike handled the, the uh, cover charge and stuff. Cause I don't remember, you know, getting carded or anything like that, but I do remember more than dancing uh, circulating through that whole place, just walking around and looking at everything and, Lots of uh, neon lights, you know, the, the the traditional pink and teal neon lights that, you know, is typical of maybe, maybe Miami. I remember that. Maybe that garden room is was lit that way, too. Um, yeah, it, was, it was a pretty funky bar. It's pretty impressive. Oh, and, and um, I just remember walking around, you know, the whole night. <laughs> right. I mean, you could keep walking. There were so many doorways inside to go through and mm-hmm. pass that you could zigzag through the bar 20 times and pass 20 different parts of the bar and see all kinds of different people. It was, it was an incredible experience. Now you were there on a weekend the first time you went. Um, They were also known, I think it was a Tuesday night um, on their, I'm pretty sure it was Tuesday nights. They did a um, 25 cent drink night. And um, you probably didn't go out much on Tuesday nights, but, at that time, when I was visiting, I would be on vacation, so I would go there whatever night I felt like going. And, I didn't um, think either. So, <laughs> and you could um, you could go in there, and with like ten bucks in your pocket, 
get totally trashed and still tip all the bartenders, you know, because <laughs> you weren't spending any money on drinks. Um, and, and that was kind of a popular thing back then in Tampa, not only with um, tracks in El Goya, but with all of the bars, they had, they each picked like a night of the week where they would do, you know, $5 all you can drink or 25 cent drinks or whatever. So literally at that time frame in Tampa, for 50 bucks a week, you could be plastered every single night of the week. <laughs> it's not necessarily a good thing, but that's the way it was back then. Right. Well, my, so my, my, strings, my strings were kind of tethered to, to Mike and his friend Jeff in those days. Uh, you know, they were the ones that were kind of leading the way. And uh, what, what, another thing that happened that first night that we went to El Goya was I saw somebody I knew, or at least I thought I did. And so we started chasing this fellow who was, you know, just walking really quickly through the bar with his entourage. And I, I caught up with him and it was my friend, Randy, who had been the mixologist at the Hojo, the Howard Johnson's uh-huh. earlier that summer. So I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know he was gay. So we were like looking at each other screaming and, you know, promising to keep each other secret <laughs> with other people. Uh, but it was him. So that was kind of a fun introduction there. Now, back then, that was an important thing. Yeah. So we, were you pretty impressed when you walked into El Goya? Was that kind of mind-blowing to walk into a gay bar that was that big and that flashy? I was like in another world. It really was. And for me, you know, it was really my second night out ever. You know, the first night was the one in Dunedin. And, um, you know, I was really so nervous. I don't think I could have, I don't think I appreciated that as much as I could have, should have. But I was totally impressed with El Goya. And it was you know, just a place you wanted to come back the next night and probably the next night, even though we didn't, um, that, you know, it had that kind of magnetism to it for sure. Not just the ambiance, but the music was really great. Um, you know, the dancing was good. And so, and and it seems like there was lots of people mingling and walking around the streets. So for somebody who really, you know, wasn't really out much, I mean, I was only out to my friends in high school. Um, it was, very unusual to uh, see other gay people because in those days, you know, we didn't have computers. <laughs> we didn't have social media. So you didn't know uh, for a long, for myself, I can speak uh, for a lot of years, you know, I felt like I was the only person on the world, on the globe who who had these thoughts and feelings um, until maybe in the late seventies or early eighties, you know, I caught a glimpse or two of someone on television you know, when the shows were then just starting to kind of um, tease audiences with gay characters, uh, mostly, you know, with stereotypical, um, you know, attributes and stuff like that. But so they weren't always positive, you know, influences. It wasn't like Will and Grace, which came later. (laughs) I know exactly what you're saying, because I came out, my first gay bar experience was in 1977. And when I walked into that bar, um, it took me about 10 minutes to realize I was in a gay bar. Hmm. I was taken there by a, a friend of mine, a guy I was dating in high school and early college. And um, I just thought what we had was an anomaly. I didn't know there was a gay world. And I went to visit him at college. He took me to this bar after dinner and we had a drink and I'm standing there. And after about five or 10 minutes, I realized everybody on the dance floor is male. And <laughs> It suddenly occurred to me that there was a gay community, and that's one of the reasons that this project has become so important to me, 
is because for so many people, especially people who came out in the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, before there was like widestream um, gay characters and movies and, and television and everything, a lot of people didn't know what to think. They, they thought they were alone in the world. They were the only weird person that had these feelings. Shame. Um, and the bars gave us a sense of community, gave us a place to meet other people like ourselves and to organize, you know, our thoughts for whether it was uh, some sort of activism or it was some sort of um, athletic endeavor, all the softball leagues and all that kind of stuff. All those organizations rose up out of the bars because that's where those were our community centers back then. Right. And, and so I can understand how that would have been kind of a revelation to you to walk into a place and suddenly see not just one or two people you thought were gay, but hundreds and hundreds of people that you knew were gay. So That's for sure. But then you had this fabulous experience in Tampa with El Goya, and then you got scared away and you moved back to Kansas City. I didn't get scared away. I graduated. And, uh, you know, Mike and I were, were, you know, kissing pools for a couple of months, but when the honeymoon was over, uh, you know, we kind of moved on. And after I left uh, Home Shopping Network and moved, I really, I never heard or, you know, we never stayed in touch until about 2011. So you do the math between 1987 and 2011. I thought, well, I'll look up Mike on Facebook and see if he's there. And I found him. So we've reconnected and our friends, uh, he lives in California now. So at least though, you know, we're, we're kind of back together at least uh, socially that way. So that's kind of fun to reconnect with your, the first person, you know, the first guy that you kissed and <laughs> had a crush on and, you know, got to relive and check his experience and see was, what, do I remember correctly? And, you know, oh my gosh, he was the cutest man I'd ever seen in person at that time. And he said the same thing about me. So that was kind of sweet and, and nice. Aww. But I, uh, I left Florida a few months after that because I graduated from high school and uh, lived with my grandparents for about four years while I paid my way through uh, community college. So at that time, I wasn't out to my family, anybody in Missouri. So I kind of was back in the closet and it was, you know, it was fairly depressing four years, <laughs> not feeling uh, or also feeling, uh, what is that, uh, just guilt and thinking, oh, it's not right. That's not me. That kind of thing. Uh, homopho homophobic thoughts. Internalized homophobia. Yeah, yeah. And trying to have girl a girlfriend or two. Uh, not working well so that was but as soon as I went away to college you know transferred away as a junior for the last two years you know it wasn't long you know maybe a, a day or two and I realized hmm, I'm gay that's that's it and you know by the time that that two-year period was over with and I moved back uh, home again with my grandparents uh, I was I came out to them and and everything was fine so did, did you feel Never went back. <laughs> Did you feel like there was a difference in the um, in the local culture as far as the gay environment was concerned in Tampa, St. Pete versus Kansas City? You know, se six or seven years later, when you kind of came out there. Well, uh, in the interim, I mean, the AIDS epidemic was was raging, and so it was kind of going on, and I wasn't really that aware of it because I wasn't in. I wasn't out and I wasn't in the community. So 
so that was something that was kind of devastating uh, and challenging, you know, gay communities across the globe, really, in those years. Those, those were kind of critical years for that, that episode. And in fact, my uh, husband is 11 years older than I am. Uh, he went through that whole uh, saga and most all of his friends are gone. Um, they didn't survive. So, uh, and I didn't get out into the community and start getting active more as an activist in Kansas City until about 1993. So it was after I came back from college and came out to my grandparents. They were so cool about it. Um, you just never know for sure, of course, when you're doing something like that. But, it, you know, once you say the three-letter word and everything was fine, then it's like a whole new world. So it's like a big weight off your shoulders. You're like, can breathe now. Good heavens. And after my, after my grandparents knew and didn't care and were just supportive, uh, I didn't care who knew and I didn't care what they thought. So the rest of the family, I just wrote a letter to everybody, sent it out <laughs> and um, to hell with them if they didn't care. But all of them were like, we have, we've known this for years. And my dad even said, tell me something I don't already know, or tell me some news I can use is what his exact words were. <laughs> so, uh, it's like everybody already knew anyway. How could, I don't know how that could be. <laughs> so, so I joined, uh, I was, I was working at unity school of Christianity at the time and unity is, uh, has churches all over the country. So there was one, a few, well, there's lots of them locally in Kansas city. I started going to one of the unity churches and they had a gay affinity group called free to be. So I started going there on Sundays and Sunday nights and, you know, meeting people and, you know, actually being able to talk to people, you know, when there's not loud music thumping and thumping. Uh, and so, you know, just started doing things for people, you know, for the gay community. I was specifically working on the organization's newsletter, you know, trying to get publicity and information out for, for the groups. And um, so it kind of went from there. In the late 90s, I was also a an online editor of a magazine for a local organization called the National Institute for LGBT Education, which lasted a couple of years. And I did a few um, online magazines for that nonprofit organization and just kind of went from there. I started having thoughts about how there's not really any archive of information about gay life in Kansas City. So I started wondering, you know, there, there really needs to be an archives uh, or a collection or something that helps do to document Kansas City's gay and lesbian and queer and transgender history. Uh, so I finally, it took a, several years, of course, but I found another archivist here in town who had been having the same thoughts and, and uh, wanderings. And so we, in 2009, with his partner, started the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America, GLAMA for short. And <laughs> Very cool. And that's, you yeah. know, that story kind of tells me the same thing that, that I said to myself when I started doing this project. Um, I had started reminiscing about one particular bar in Atlanta, had conversations with people, and that would always lead to, well, what about this bar? And we used to go to that bar first. And, and it occurred to me, and I'm sure you've seen this too, that one of the areas that is most lacking in our gay archives um, anywhere really in the United States is documenting the stories of the bars. Everybody wants to talk about the politics, about Anita Bryant, about the riots, 
all those things are documented a thousand times more than we need them documented probably. But the, the bar scene to me stuck out as a sore thumb that nobody's remembering them. Nobody's really paying any particular attention other than maybe to, you know, mention that, yeah, there were 10 bars in Kokomo uh, in 1982 or something. And so that's why I kind of started this whole project. And I know before you get into, um, into your archiving project, you mentioned to me that you had a special experience um, at a nightclub in Kansas City called The Edge on New Year's Eve of 94. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, the Edge was really my club here in town. That's where I was going out uh, after coming out to my family, uh, church, friends from church. You know, uh, The Edge was probably Kansas City's closest thing to a New York nightclub has ever had. And I wouldn't, I think probably the, the family that owned the, the bar would not have considered it or wanted to be called a gay bar. Um, and that, so that's up for debate, but I would say that it was definitely, um, straight welcoming because <laughs> it was heavily gay, whether they want to admit it or not. Uh, so it was very straight welcoming. And, uh, I was there every Friday and Saturday night from 94 for the next three years. I went out the, the first night with some friends and met one of their friends there who uh, bought everybody a round of champagne at midnight. So that was very sweet. And we, uh, Terry and I started going to the edge every Friday and Saturday night, you know, ad nauseum, <laughs> but the edge was really fantastic. It was, um, located in a historic building, much like Algoya in Tampa, a building built in the early 1900s for the garment uh, industry in Kansas City. So Lucas Place is the name of the building, and it is situated in Kansas City's garment district. It's a historic district with all the buildings that used to manufacture clothing uh, for the country. And you'd enter from the backside of the building into the edge. And again, thumping music really loud, what was really great about the edge um, and dancing was that you could actually feel the music. The, the speakers were so magnanimous or, or tuned to the bass that you could literally stand on the speaker and, 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 and there was a rail around the big dance floor. It was really fantastic. And you'd walk in after uh, uh, going through the bouncer through the front door. I, and by the way, Terry and I would always get there before 10 o'clock when the cover start uh, charge started. So we always beat the cover charge <laughs> getting there before 10 o'clock and nobody was there. So you had to just kind of walk around the, the empty bar for about a, an hour before it started picking up, but you'd go through this uh, barrel hallway that was uh, kind of like a bridge and it was metal around you with lights leading you into the club and then, of course, all the all the uh, things that you'd want with strobes and lasers and mirror balls and lights and everything. Just just again, out of this world kind of experience for a Midwesterner. You know, I, I'd never been to a New York bar, but this is what I envisioned it being like. And so it kind of had the feeling on a smaller scale, I'm sure, of something like Studio 54 or one of the big discos where they had the big light shows and the disco ball and the prominent dance floor and the good sound system. Right. And minus, minus, you know, celebrity, of course, uh, although there, you know, everybody would know when there would be like a local actor who would come in, uh, 
you know, to the club that of a night. Um, if you knew the right people, you could get a mixtape from the DJ of the music from that night, which was kind of exciting. Uh, the restrooms were kind of fun. They were all unisex uh, bathrooms. And because this was not, like I said, a gay bar, uh, you know, it was, it was heavily mixed, but very straight friendly. <laughs> and the, the bathroom stalls oftentimes had parties going on within them. Uh, with all kinds of um, activities, as you might imagine, uh, I well, understand some that from, involved clothing and some that or didn't involve clothing, and, and some my, that involved well, powders and liquids. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I could. I can only speak from hearsay because I just never was in in that kind of element or groove. But it, it did go on, and I heard about that. Well, you know, some of the bars that have lasted the longest and that have the most renown as you know gay happy places are bars that were not specifically uh, gay. Right. Uh, for instance, the Limelight in New York was never really a gay bar, but it embraced every kind of freak, weirdo, and misfit that ever existed in the club scene. Um, you know, they didn't care if you wanted to wear, well, in the case of the Limelight, a six-foot chicken suit and mm-hmm. come into the building, or if you were going to be in a you know, skimpy bikini or assless chaps or a glamorous ball gown, male or female, they didn't care. It was just come in, have a good time and uh, enjoy the party. I think I, I, I can totally see what you're talking about. I believe, though, the Edge had some kind of a, dan- a, uh, a, a, a look or a, a dress code of sorts, because um, what happened one night in 1996 in I think it was February seventh, um, the uh, one of the owners of the bar, whose name was uh, Frank Fontana. His father was Victor Fontana, and Victor and Frank owned lots of bars around town and had for years. His father Victor had owned lots of bars, and they together owned the Edge. And the younger Frank was the one who was actually managing it, and you know really was there of a weeknight or weekend night. And uh, abruptly, one night, some random uh, fire shots were uh, had out from the street, and they came through the windows of the edge and shot uh, Frank. Uh, and I, he didn't die right away, but uh, a, a day or so later, he passed away. So uh, the edge closed very soon thereafter. Uh, his father wasn't interested in keeping it open after that happened. So it's uh, sad to hear that. We ha- we've heard. There are probably at least 25 or 30 stories that I know of, of similar situations where, you know, there's been some sort of uh, gun violence directed at a gay bar for one reason or another. And um, kind of like a drive by shooting, they think, uh, because you couldn't see inside the windows from the street. They don't believe that it was directed to him. It just so happened to hit him. And it was around three o'clock in the morning. So it was when the patrons were gone and it was just the employees trying to close up the place. Uh, They also think it was somebody who had been turned away at the door for inappropriate clothing, possibly. So getting back to your idea about uh, uh, dress code. (laughs) So, so unfortunately we lost the edge and today that building is, um, has been converted into condos and apartments. So. All right then. Yeah. So you had started to talk about your, um, your formation of Lama, and 
the uh, Gay and Lesbian Archives of Middle America. Yeah. And I was blown away. The way I got uh, connected to you and knew to even reach out and talk to you was I've done a lot of research online uh, about different gay bars and things like that. And I'm building my personal library (laughs) of uh, books that deal with gay bar history around the country. And I stumbled across your book, Changing Times, Mm -hmm. The Almanac and Digest of Kansas City's LGBTQIA History by someone named David W. Jackson. Um, Do you know him? Well, it sounds like you're holding a doorstop. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really shocked when it arrived at my door, speaking of which, and it was over 400 pages long. And that just speaks to your uh, point earlier about archiving the information about our gay history, because who would have guessed that in Kansas City, Missouri, there would be 400 pages worth of history to write about? And from what I understand, uh, and from a previous conversation we've had, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, I know you've told me that there are single sentences in this book that have inspired um, whole new books. Or could or should, for sure, yeah. So now one thing that I was particularly impressed to see in here was um, in in the book, you actually have a bar census which includes a listing of many, many bars that once existed um, in Kansas City, gay bars or gay-friendly bars, because I know sometimes it's a little ambiguous when you get back Mm -hmm. uh, into the 40s, 50s, 60s. Nobody advertised as a gay bar, pretty much. Um, How many bars did you discover in Kansas City? I don't know the exact number, but we're approaching around 200 establishments. Uh, the, the bar census has kind of morphed into a little bit beyond just bars, but and has also included uh, such things as community centers, which really there are only a couple of three of those, um, you know, churches, a couple of three of those, restaurants, that kind of thing. So there's at least uh, close to 200 establishments from the 1930s to today. Uh, the earliest one that I can remember off the top of my head is Dante's Inferno. Uh, which was a really great bar where the cocktail waitresses had uh, devil's uniforms and then their long tails at the, t- at the end of their tail were, were cigarette lighters for the gentlemen to light their cigarettes. <laughs> and they also had impersonation at that bar too. And I think there was a gentleman or a, uh, a performer who was uh, half and half, you know, half man, half woman dressing that way. So kind of a Victor cool. Victoria look. Exactly. <laughs> So um, the set, uh, every, every place that I could possibly find from city directories to um, newspaper articles and glamour collections that have been donated in the last decade or more, we've had some, some, such really great success with glamour at attracting collections. People in Kansas City now have a place to you know, clean out their closets and, and donate their things that they've been collecting. And people like me who are pack rats have been collecting stuff all these years. And some of them have been better at it than others. We've got a few collections of, of people's things that they've assembled fantastic scrapbooks, you know, just so detailed and, uh, and, and helpful to researchers because they've, they've not only collected it just out of personal interest, but then 
they found out about Glamour and they decided this is the place to go. And Glamour is um, supported and housed by the University of Missouri. Uh, and it's in the Kansas City branch or Kansas City uh, College where Glamour's collections are archived properly. Uh, they're safe, they're sound, they're serviced by professionals uh, in the field of archives management. So it's, you know, you just can't beat it. And uh, you, talking about gay bars, one of the main pieces of information that a researcher like me uh, had at their fingertips to build that census, because it just didn't happen overnight, <laughs> Art, you, as you know, you have to dig for these little pieces of information. And I tried to find, you know, the dates when the bars open and when they closed. Oftentimes I'll have an owner's name or a manager's name or some factoid about the club, one, one thing or another. But it's those bar rags that that have been produced since probably the 1970s. Yeah, it's, it's um, and Damron guides. Um, I don't know if you've used those much, but yes. uh, Damron's guides were invaluable. I know when I was, uh, I used to publish a gay magazine a long time ago in the 80s in Atlanta. And wow. um, I would use the, the Damron's guide all the time because even if you're only going two hours away, you know, you didn't know where from Atlanta, you didn't know where the gay bars were in Birmingham. I mean, mm -hmm. so you would use a guide like that or a, a regional newspaper and look to see where the listings were. And once you found one or two, you could find the rest because, you know, at that time, everybody was helping everybody else out because it was all kind of underground ish. Yeah. Um, and um, those things are typically printed on newsprint paper that weren't meant to survive long term. But thankfully, you know, people like us have held on to them and uh, they're finding their way to archives for, for people to have access to them. Well, one thing that I've been doing, and I'm sure you can appreciate the reason I've, I've delved into this. When I first started um, working on this project, the, the first task that came up was a bar owner from Atlanta asked me to create a commemorative design um, to remember the 45th anniversary of the year they opened that bar. And so I went online looking for copies of their logo so that I could use that in the design. And so many times, as you said, these publications were printed on newsprint. They weren't cherished. People would roll them up in their back pocket. They would stuff it under their mattress or, you know, because if you didn't lay it out on your coffee table for sure. You didn't want anybody else to, you know, find out. Um, and so one of the challenges I had was finding the logos for all these bars, because if, unless you can find a, a decent printed copy of an ad or, you know, some other memorabilia, you have no idea what that logo looked like. So my first challenge when I started was I said, I'm only going to focus on bars that I can find the logos for and digitally reconstruct them. And I've done about 1,700 gay bars across the country and taken their logos and digitally remastered them so that they can be used. If somebody wanted to do a slideshow, for example, on a 70-inch television, which did not exist in 1983, um, you can do that. You can now take the logo and have it big enough to broadcast on a large screen in a part of a presentation or something like that. Um, and um, 
a lot of times you learn a lot just by looking, you know, at the logos and the pictures of the bars that can't really be expressed in words because somehow those images are burned in your brain. If you went to that bar every week for two or three years, when you see that logo, it puts a smile on your face. It's like seeing an old, you know, family photo of your grandmother's wedding or something. You just look at it and you're like, oh, I remember that time or, you know, I have warm and fuzzy feelings about it. Um, but I know it's, it's a big challenge to, to round up all the information and organize it and to get it out there to where people can use it because it does no good if somebody gives you a, a collection of memorabilia and you put it in a cardboard box on a shelf and it stays there for the next 30 years. That doesn't help anybody very much either. Right. So your book and um, the books of so many other people that have have put the stories of our LGBT history on paper and made them available, you know, through audiobooks, through printed books, through online um, videos and things of that nature, um, really helps preserve the history even more. And that's the reason I want to do these interviews. That's the way I, reason I want people like you to tell your firsthand stories about where you were and what bars you remember, what you remember about them, because, you know, people will see them. They'll watch the videos. They'll remember the bars or they'll learn about a bar they never heard of before. Well, and hopefully compare and contrast, you know, their memories with someone, some of these other interviews. Uh, I've listened to a few of your interviews as well. So they, they're really spectacular. I'm so happy that you're doing this work. And if I had known that the logos were central to your, to your uh, drive, I would have might've paid more attention. So now I have uh, a to-do list that I can maybe help you out with as I'm researching, I can capture more of those uh, logos for you. Yeah, And on my, uh, on the homepage of my website, uh, gaybarchives.com, there's a video on there that has about, I think 1250 of the, the first 1250 logos that I digitally reconstructed in a slideshow video. Um, and they're each up on the screen for like a second and a half. So it's like a 20 minute video that shows 1250 logos from gay bars that pretty much don't exist anymore. Um, and it's just captivating. It's, it's just, it's amazing to think that nobody had done this before. And so I'm, I'm kind of glad to, stumble across people like you I keep every day it seems like I run across another name from somebody that used to own a bar or used you know is a an archivist or historian somewhere and the network keeps growing and I'm sure it's the same for you you know people start to hear what you do and then everybody well you need to talk to my friend so-and-so he used to own this bar his family used to own that block his you know and it, it keeps growing we had that same thought when we first started Glamour that we just couldn't believe that it hadn't been done before. So thank goodness, you know, you've, you've latched onto the specific, you know, aspect of LGBTQ life and, you know, you're producing and you're creating really fantastic resources for the future. I can say that for sure. And only someone, someone like me, uh, such as yourself can appreciate the magnitude of time that you've put into you know, just researching and producing, you know, even the video that you did, that you just mentioned, you know, I sincerely appreciate 
the amount of time that you have put into that, just that one project, that one aspect of your project. So well, I don't need to tell you this, but it becomes a labor labor of love. Right. Once you get into it, and um, one of the most rewarding things to me is, um, and you're you're a member there, but my Facebook group that I started about a year ago, just over a year ago, uh, the Gabe Archives group on Facebook. I created that group so that people from any walk of life, anywhere in the country or even in the world that's on Facebook could join and share their stories and their memories and of gay bars from their past. And amazingly, in just over a year, we've grown to over 4,300 members. Um, and those members are active. It's not one of those groups that you get one post a week from the you know, administrator I have people posting things. I've learned new things every day on that group because people post memories about the bar that they used to bartend at in 1978 or yeah, whatever. And there's, discussion. there's this discussion going on. And I welcome you and all of the archivists out there, all the historians, to share stuff from your own archives on there so that people can learn that there is a glamour and they can find out about you know your social media pages and your website and be more involved with that too, because it's not about me. It's about the archives. It's about the preservation of our history. And so anything you can share or Glamour wants to share, you know, that's what the group is there for. That's what we're, all 4,300 members are there because they're interested in our history, not because they want to see pictures of, you know, shirtless men asking for a date, (laughs) which I don't allow unless it's relevant to a bar. (laughs) <laughs> when we do tabling events, uh, Art, you'll be happy to know that, you know, that 400 page book, you know, I, I work on it all the time because I'm continually updating it. But the the bar census is only like 30 pages. I probably spent more time creating that, those 30 pages than I did the other 200 and some odd or 300 and some odd other pages. So uh, but when people go to this book, to Changing Times, that's the first place they turn to because they remember the first bars that they went to. And they wanted to know if if I've represented what they remember in that bar census. So, And I'm sure if you didn't, they're calling you or emailing you or something. Oh, I'm in my third edition right now. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I've gotten some editions that way, thankfully, uh, because there maybe a bar didn't last long enough to even get into a city directory. Or, you know, just got missed in record keeping somehow because of its, you know, short-lived life or something. So I know yeah. that's true. Yeah, but I really appreciate the conversation on your Facebook page. I tried to do something like that for Kansas City's uh, bars through a, um, a website called History Pen. The National Park Service directed right. me to a website when I was uh, contemplating, you know, getting something digitally out there about the Kansas City bars. And uh, so they asked me to build the history pin uh, collection. So all of Kansas City's bars that I know of that are in changing times are in that uh, history pin that you'll link, you know, somewhere on your website. So there is some digital connections there. Uh, I don't think, you know, there's just not a whole lot of people finding it as easily as they could on Facebook, I'm sure. So well, I'll, start I have, post, I'll start posting more on, on your Facebook page. for sure. On, um, on my website, on the gabearchives.com website, there's a page called Archives. And both the Glamour um, website and the History Pin website are linked on that page. 
So anybody that's looking for archival information, if they go to the archives page, they can scroll down and find, you know, the uh, Gay and Lesbian Archive of the Pacific Northwest or the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Middle America or the Stonewall uh, National Museum and Archives in Fort Lauderdale. All of those websites are linked there so people can look and they can find out more resources because no matter how many books or pages or videos that we create, we are never, you and I are never going to cover the entirety of gay history. So we might as well interconnect with all these other people that are already doing the same kind of work and make it easy for anybody who wants to find the information to go to the source they want. Yeah. And, and that's important to me. And what's exciting for me, I know it will be for you is that some viewer uh, or listener will, you know, have their own idea about, well, how come this hasn't been done? And then they'll start tracking down that their little focused uh, part of, of the history that they want to compile and tell. So the 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 types of projects and the number of projects that could come from you know what you're doing is kind of endless if you think about it absolutely yeah. now i know um you're currently working on one of those projects that kind of evolved from what one sentence in the changing times book uh why don't you tell us a little bit about that um, and I hope that people reading Changing Times, if they're Kansas Cityans especially, they might latch on to a, a paragraph or a sentence because the structure of Changing Times is an almanac. So it's a chronology. And any uh, I have said to, to you, Art, that any of those little paragraphs or one-liners on one little event that happened in Kansas City history could be taken to the nth degree and, and a whole article or a whole book could be written on it. So I did that uh with one entry from 1961 when I um, discovered that Kansas City's first and only, even to this day, only uh, male physique photographer that was published started in 1961 here in Kansas City. And in fact, he's the only one in Missouri that I have found that's been a published physique photographer. So I'm uh, for the last seven years, I've been writing a biography of Pinky Rosenberg, who started Troy Saxon Studio in 1961, and he operated for 20 years, eventually moving to uh, Los Angeles, where he passed away in the mid-2000s. So that's a, it's been a kind of a fun book, too, of course, visually, if you might imagine, as I research beefcake magazines from the 1960s uh, <laughs> uh, and just describing how that industry, when it started, was very innocent and very new. And, uh, and of course, how, how it grew and expanded and evolved as um, U.S. law and laws changed, allowing for more. In a lot of ways, um, back before the 70s, uh, those male physique uh, pictorial magazines and, and things were kind of our gay porn because there was no gay porn back then. And um, I know there's been a couple of, of big organizations. Wasn't there one in California called the American Models Guild or something? That oh, was known, right. Yes, you know, A&D. Yep. That was known for having these beefcake models pictured in, you know, kind of like pinup girls, but guys. In, right. uh, 
in these magazines that I'm sure were used as uh, some sort of pornographic stimulation for frustrated gay men who couldn't get their fill anywhere else. (laughs) Bob Miser was the founder of AMG, and he's really probably the founder of that whole genre, and uh, his legacy continues to this day for sure, yes. And my fellow uh, Pinky was out in California in the late 50s, and probably met and worked for, and I believe uh, took photographs for the very young uh, AMG. So that's kind of covered in my biography of him. Very cool. We'll look forward to that coming out. Is it going to be another seven years or are we going to be sooner than that? I'm hoping to do it this year. I really want to have an anniversary book uh, since it's the 60th anniversary of when Pinky started uh, Troy Saxon Studio. But I'm really trying to track down a couple of models right now. So it's kind of expanded beyond his biography. And I've been able to track down uh, about 25 or 30 of his models. They all use pseudonyms. So that's been doubly hard to find these guys. But in the early days, they would publish a little blurb with the picture that I found were very revealing, you know, for somebody like me who knows how to do some research. Uh, I was able to track out of 150 models uh, over his 20-year career, I've found the true identities of at least 25, maybe 30 uh, guys. And of course, some of them have passed away uh, by this time, but I'm trying to uh, subtly uh, connect, co- connect with them and contact them and see if they would be willing to share their memories uh, of how and why they got uh, involved with uh, Troy Saxon Studio. I can almost guess that most of them just wanted fast cash and they had their pictures taken in their Speedos and were gone before they were even published or, or, or um, printed, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, I would not be surprised. Might not even remember it. Like, did I do that? It's kind of like that drunken tattoo. Oh, that's what I did on Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. Or I didn't know that that was uh, what I was posing for. <laughs> I thought I was posing for the Sears Robot catalog. What was that? I thought I was posing for the Sears Robot catalog. Well, let me tell you, the Sears Robot catalog got kind of risque in the 1970s, if you've yeah, seen the pictures. It sure did. Well, I'm glad that you put this uh, this almanac together because it certainly does have a lot of information about Kansas City, Missouri. And if that can be done for Kansas City, there must be hundreds of other cities across the country that are lacking this amount of information. I mean, we all know the big cities, New York and Chicago and uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco. There are plenty of, of books cataloging what uh, what their history was. And uh, I've interviewed a few people who have written books about specific cities. Um, first one that comes to mind is uh, Michael Takash and uh, his LGBT Milwaukee, which is pretty extensive. Um, but um, it's really impressive to see this much information in one book about one city. And I certainly encourage anybody who is listening to go out and look for a copy of Changing Times. It's on Amazon, I think. It's everywhere else. I, I tend to buy all my books on Amazon because it's easy and quick. Um, but you'd be amazed how much you can learn about our history that you would never have known had you not picked up a book like this or heard of someone like David W. Jackson. So I certainly encourage you to, uh, to go out there and do some research 
and uh, look at the Glamour website and see what you can dig up. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with us today and tell us about your history in, in Tampa uh, and Dunedin mm. and as well as Kansas City and about your projects on the books. Thank, Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. That concludes another episode of the Gay Bar Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.